You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, I'm Tom Wally. Welcome to Service Course. As ever, I'm joined by our France correspondent, Lizzie Banks. Um, How's life over there, Lizzie? Uh, bon- bonjour, Monsieur Tom. <laughs> Comment ça va? <laughs> um, Look, I can see Mont Blanc through your window, Lizzie. Well, I'm glad it's you nice. can because I can't because it's cloudy today. Well, it's a bit of artifice. I, I, you, you, you you're an illusionist, which is so which is so apt given the theme of our episode today. We're in the art world this week, aren't we, Lizzie? Yeah, we are. We are. We're going to be talking to some of the best custom frame painters in the world, but not just frames. I mean, these guys paint everything that they can get their hands on. We're going to be talking to Rad Tony uh, over from Bellingham in uh, the USA in, in Washington uh, and also to Tom from Custom Flow in Hull, a little bit closer to home. And uh, also a bit later, we're going to be talking to my teammate from EF Education Tibco SVB, Abby Smith, who who she, she paints as a hobby uh, and she's also been painting her own shoes. So hopefully we're going to give you a bit of insight into um, the lives of the custom painter, painters and also how to do a bit of DIY yourself. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe we'll get to my DIY later. Actually, behind me, Lizzie, you can't see it, just behind those records, um, I have got a custom painted frame. It's, I say custom painted, it's one that was just uh, cooked in an oven and then powder coated just to change the colour of it. But... That's about as as far as I've really gone. Um, I'm fascinated to hear this. But before we get to this, Lizzie, um, I have been sort of, you know, I have an interest in the more f- sort of fringier areas of cycling technology, uh, namely video games and graphene. Well, I have been uh, picking up on a few sort of stories that are around. So I've got a couple of stories for you before we get to the art. Let's play the tape. So you might have seen a new product from Absolute Black on the market. Absolute Black are based out of Slovenia and we've spoken to Borat Fonda from the company before. We talked to him about Absolute Black's graphene lube, um, a lubricant that contains graphene. Incidentally, Borat works in the lab with Tade Pogacar on performance gains and he told us about that work uh, just prior to him winning his first Tour de France, if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, Absolute Black have a new product called Graphen Pads, and it's a revolutionary disc brake uh, which got headlines because of its eye-watering price of 100 quid. Now you know that I've got a bit of a geeky interest in graphene, and a while back I actually spent time at The Geek, the Graphene Engineering Innovation Centre in Manchester. That was back in January 2020. God, what an innocent time, uh, if you want to check out that episode. There I met Adrian Nixon, who publishes the Nixine Journal, covering news in the world of graphene and other two-dimensional materials. Now, whenever some new wonder product comes up claiming to use graphene, I always ask for Adrian to look deeper into it, as often products advertised as using graphene are actually just using plain old graphite. Now, here's what he told me about Absolute Black's latest product. One of the problems you can get with brake pads is something called brake fade, which you probably know all about. Basically, uh, these things are powered by hydraulic fluid. When you press on the brake pedal, you're squeezing fluid, which goes all the way down a pipe and then presses against the brake. Now, the way brakes work is you're taking kinetic energy and transferring it into heat energy. But the problem is the brake itself gets so warm, gets really, really hot, that it starts, that heat goes through into the brake fluid. It boils the brake fluid, which creates a gas. The gas compresses more 
than the liquid does and so that's what causes brake fade now what the absolute black product seems to do is there's, there's two parts to this first thing is getting rid of the heat so if you can imagine you've got like a brake pad gripping hold of the disc then what absolute black have done is they've created like a little radiator that sticks on top of the well it's actually an extension of the brake pad isn't it and they, they've designed the fins so that they radiate the heat out away from where the brake fluid is so you don't cook the brake fluid and turn it into a gas what's graphene doing in there i'm not quite sure what these fins are made of but it looks like there's some graphene composite and by adding graphene into metals and plastics and ceramics what you can do is increase the heat transfer because graphene is one of the world's best conductors of heat so they're putting graphene powder in and making a composite and then that those that graphene powder all the little particles playing past the parcel with heat and they can take the heat away from where it's generated to where it needs to be radiated that's one aspect of the brake and then the other thing is that people normally use copper in the the brake pad themselves in the in the brake pad you need to manage the friction so you want something which grips the disc but doesn't have so much friction that it it starts to wear the disc down so you need to balance the friction out with something which has semi-lubricant properties and good heat transfer. And at the moment, the uh, most standard brakes, uh, from my understanding, use copper dust. Copper is one, expensive, and two, in demand, because all the green energy projects that are going on require copper wiring for green electricity generation, stuff like that. But also, there might be performance gains to get. And what they've done is they've substituted, it looks like they've done, they've substituted some of the copper for graphene powder and the graphene is actually doing the job of slight lubrication and heat transfer again but then there's an, an additional benefit that they seem to get which is some of the graphene particles break off and they fill in little gaps in the wear on the discs so you've actually got a more seamless surface uh, more surface area um, so you get better breaking over time Oh, that's interesting stuff. Now, Lizzie, while I was talking to Adrian, I was introduced to his colleague, Rob Wielden. Uh, now, we need to cue the spy music for this one. So Rob told me a really interesting story that I haven't heard elsewhere. It involves Victoria, graphene, and international relations, international espionage. Here's Rob. Well, Vittoria make tyres. They put graphene into their bike tyres. They were getting their graphene from a company called Perpetuous, which are based in Wales. Perpetuous were looking to get investment in their company. The company was called Taurus. And it turns out that Taurus are owned or controlled by a Chinese academic, Dr. Zhongfu Zhao, and effectively they would be taking over the company. That raised alarm bells with the, uh, well, when, when he was the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, and the government intervened to stop selling or stop British technology moving to China uh, as part of the, um, the, the new Security Act. That's had a, a sort of curious effect on the company. Not, they've not got the investment and they've basically stalled now and they can't seem to do anything because the government has intervened. Two or three years ago, we contributed to a report to the US Congress on US-China relationships and the economic impact 
and the chapter that we contributed to was on 2D materials, advanced materials. Certainly since 2019, the US have been concerned that China has got its eyes on advanced materials, advanced technology. The UK government seems to have woken up a little later yeah, with the Defence and Security Act, but it's having, like I said, a sort of possibly unintended consequences. So a company said, you know, the government says a company can't get investment from China or sell its technology, its, its IP to China, but there's no investment in the UK to replace that. So what happens? The company goes down the pan. Now, as well as graphene, you'll also know that I have an interest in online cycling platforms. That's because with my current family situation, two kids under five, it's pretty difficult for me to get out on the road much. And I also just love video games. I'm a geek. I actually dedicated a couple of episodes to this. Recently, there was one on cycling in the metaverse. And before that, I did an episode on the intersection between cycling and video games. And you can still find both of those on the podcast feed. Now, in the first of those episodes, I spoke to the creators of Hustle City, which is a cycling game that utilizes your turbo. But you don't just pedal, you steer yourself around a virtual city where you're working as a cycle messenger and you're delivering packages. Now, sadly, Hustle City hasn't yet arrived as a finished version, um, but I was excited to see something brand new called Kinix, which is out now in beta mode. Now, this one is an online cycling platform that features a bunch of different games with nods to classics like Mario Kart. I actually joined the game's Discord channel in order to ask the developers some questions about it. Now, the answers here are voiced by an actor. See if you can spot who it is. Can you introduce yourself and tell me a bit about the team behind Kinex? My name is Philippe Garin. I'm a Colombian entrepreneur, a researcher at Keio University in Tokyo, and the CEO of Kinex. The team of co-founders met four years ago during our master's degree where we researched the intersection of gaming, sports and human-computer interaction. Rico Zhao from China is our creative director. He's a passionate gamer, talented game designer and an eSport expert. And Ryochi Ando is a Tokyo-born PhD in sports and technology and a celebrated futurist who loves creating new and crazy sports. Are you all from a cycling background? Not really. Even though all the team is now into cycling, I'm the cyclist of the group. What type of cyclist are you? Growing up, I always had a bike by my side. In my home country of Colombia, some of the greatest cyclists come from where I'm from, like Lucho Herrera and more recently Nairo Quintana and Esteban Chavez. I'd watched Lucho Herrera on TV with my dad during the Tour de France and he quickly became someone I looked up to. These days, as a new parent, I'm an indoor cyclist during the week. But on weekends, I take my bike out of the city and explore the outskirts of Tokyo. So what inspired the game? The game was inspired by a desire to create something new and different for indoor cyclists. We wanted to create a game that was unlike anything else out there and would uniquely challenge players. There are many training solutions out there, but there isn't any real gaming one that would talk to us. So we decided to create one. Kinix is a gaming platform designed to explore different game genres creatively so that players have other options to choose from. The first set of party games is inspired by Mario Party, 
a collection of four fast-paced games to compete against three other players in real time. So, other than Hustle City, is there anything else like this? I think we are in the early days of real cycling gaming. Besides Hustle City, I've seen Peloton experiment with gaming, with the lane break game, but other than that, there isn't much more. I think that with the introduction of new computing hardware like AR and MR glasses, 5G and more software like Kinex, the cycling esport industry's future looks immersive and super exciting. If that's got you interested and you want to try Kinex, go to kinex.jp and Kinex is spelled K-I-N-I-X. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack please. That's Seb PK interrupting this episode of Service Course to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel. For most of us, learning a second language in school wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. I can remember calling Mrs. Simpson mum during one of my German lessons, so I never took that subject any further. The shame. Now, thanks to Babbel, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language, whether you'll be travelling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time. Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. I've been using Babbel recently and I've been learning or relearning or refreshing my Italian. That is because after a few difficult years, which I'm sure you've all experienced yourselves, I can travel now and I'm looking to get back to my favourite country on the planet, which is Italy. And I'm going to take my kids there for the first time and I'd love for them to see their dad using a bit of the local language. Babbel makes language learning quick and easy because it focuses on natural conversation. The 15-minute lessons are designed to be the most efficient and effective way to learn a new language. Lessons are created by over 150 language experts, so you learn how to have real-world conversations, things that you'll actually use, not meaningless phrases. And the interactive lessons aren't just robots talking, they're voiced by native speakers using a modern conversation-based method. So in no time, you'll be speaking confidently about real-life topics in another language. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, or even join live classes with a language teacher. Start your new language learning journey with Babbel today. And right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with the promo code CYCLING. Well, it's been a bit of a whirlwind of racing since we last spoke, Tom, but now we are moving so fast towards the World Championships and I always get a little bit of geeky pleasure out of trying to spot which riders have gone rogue with their equipment, not complying with the team equipment, whether or not they're going to get fined by their teams or not. Um, But one thing I did notice from the upcoming Australia World Championships is the Australian cycling team kit, the new kit. Have you seen it, Tom? No, do you know what? I'm going to do some live Googling on the podcast now. So Australia... Well, whilst you Google, I will tell you it is an absolutely beautiful new design featuring the classic green and gold design, which firstly I think is brilliant because it is so identifiable and easy to spot in the world's peloton, which sometimes can be 
a tricky beast in itself because you have different different kits to what you've been used to the whole season and you know some of the kits are just very difficult to identify i think the gb kit for one is one that doesn't really stand out in the bunch but this design is absolutely beautiful and it's embedded with an indigenous print which they say represents their principles of diversity and inclusion with the theme of reconciliation now what do you make of it tom lizzie banks you so i've just googled it and i can see it in front of me can i just ask you now to google nottingham forest awake it right i'm gonna put my mic down for a moment because uh because I am definitely going to draw a parallel between these two kits. Well, that is interesting, Tom, actually, because later I was going to talk a little bit about art and football kits. But I think I'll just postpone that chat for now and leave that to a little bit later because I've been interested in and fascinated by all genres of art for as long as I can remember now, probably the same as you, really. But being wrapped up in the cycling world, it struck me that this is probably the only sport that has such a strong artistic connection. And I don't know what it is, whether it's the stunning photography that comes out of races, the designs of the kit, the bike designs, the paint jobs. We simply don't see that in other sports. The closest comparison I can think of would be snow sports, perhaps, with customization of boards and helmets. Um, in tennis, there's a strong link to fashion, guided by many of the players, but we We don't see custom-painted rackets and custom-painted shoes. And then football, the most popular sport in the world, with the canvases begging for creativity, but all we usually see, perhaps Nottingham Forest is the exception, is the plain strip with the sponsors' logos emblazoned carelessly across the shirt. So why is that? Why is it that we have this beautiful hunger for art and creativity within the sport of cycling and the wider cycling media? Well, I mean, I would, I'd, I'd maybe I'd argue that, that football these days is paying a little bit more attention. I mean, kits, have, kits were quite fashionable years ago and then they sort of fell out of fashion. The kits have become very, become much more um, fashionable and people are starting to experiment a bit more. The reason why I showed you that Nottingham Forest kit is because I think it looks a lot like that Australia kit, the, the, the blue and gold sort of colouring and and the patterns in it and um i'm actually wearing that shirt tonight but but you've still got this huge blank space in the middle of the Mm, shirt where there's such an opportunity for creativity you could have an embedded pattern yet it's just it's just a you know a single block color well i think i mean cycling's interesting i mean you know yeah, cyclists are more interesting as sports people they tend to be you know thank you within very much the peloton. <laughs> <laughs> but within the peloton you, you, do, you do meet people who've had who have had or have other lives you know we um there are uh, philosophers you know uh Guillaume martin's a philosopher isn't he right that you know you wouldn't re- tend to get that in football and and i guess with with cycling there's a lot of I guess the relaxation side of things, people pay a lot more attention to because, you know, your rest and recovery, you're doing stuff that you love is, is super important. Um, but I don't, I don't know what it is about cycling that sort of attracts these sort of more cerebral types, whether it's in literature or, or art. I've got, I've got no idea. Well, in this episode, we are looking at custom painting, and I spoke to two frame artists at the top of the game in the business of custom painting frames and just about anything else they can get their paint to stick to. Hi, my name's Tom. I'm from Custom Flow in East Yorkshire in the UK. Um, I've always had a, a background in art and design uh, through college and university. Um, and I, I started doing a bit of airbrushing in my last year at uni for one of the courses that I was doing. And then it kind of just developed from there. Um, 
I've started doing uh, motorbike helmets, bike tanks. It was mainly sort of like more in the automotive trade, doing more kind of artwork than it was actual paint work as such. And then it, it suddenly just took on a, a whole new direction when somebody asked me to do a bike at one point. I've always done the paintwork as kind of like a hobby alongside a, like a main job uh, after university. And I was working at a marketing firm on a desk job and I, I was putting weights on as you do. So I started uh, doing a little bit of cycling myself. And then it was while I was out cycling, somebody asked me if like what I do. And I said, oh, I do a bit of paintwork on the side. They said, oh, do you do bikes? I said, no, I don't. But I said, I don't see why I couldn't. And they then give me their, my first commission on a bike, which was probably about eight years ago. And then it just seems to spiral from there. Uh, and my work is, I would say, about 80% in the cycling industry and 20% in other stuff such as like the motorbike helmets. And then really strange requests sometimes for bizarre things to be painted. Well, one of the strangest ones I did was I painted a flower wheel off a, a Wahoo kicker um, a couple of years ago for the Tour of Britain trophies, which was a bit of a strange one to paint. That's kind of how I got started, was doing crash helmets. Um, I was I was kind of sort of like cut my teeth on them, basically, and you do, they're a massive learning curve. Due to the shape of them being a, like a sphere, when you're trying to put a logo on, it'll curve in every other direction to the way that you want it to go. So you've got to kind of, when you're creating the stencils, is do them so that they're going like in the opposite direction. So when you do apply them to a curved surface, they're going straight. <laughs> so there's loads of little tip, like tricks that you need to be aware of when you're a painter. Hi, my name is uh, Tony Bowman. I run a little paint shop called Made Rad. Um, a lot of you know me as Made Rad by Tony, uh, and that's me, I'm Tony. Looking back on it now, it's kind of funny because my very first bike, my dad painted. Um, it was my sister's originally. It was a, a little you know, pink and white bike with a pink basket on it and little flowers and stuff. And they presented it to me as, this is your new bike and I was not so thrilled. Um, so my dad popped the flowers off and painted it blue and I was so stoked. Um, so now looking back, like I don't know if that was a monumental moment in my life or not, but it's kind of followed me throughout, um, I guess, owning bicycles. I've always uh, kind of wanted to customize and personalize just about everything that I have owned um, and bikes were no different. So as a kid, I was always painting and repainting and then you know, swapping extra parts out or sticking stickers on here or whatever. Um, so then uh, I've always just painted, you know, also like on canvases and everything else. So I never set out to actually paint bikes professionally, uh, but I got a job working for Specialized uh, back in 2011 uh, for their dealer development uh, and kind of retail training program called SBCU. Um, so I just kind of was happened to be in the right place at the right time, I guess, and just continued doing what I was always doing. I painted a helmet for myself. Um, somebody saw a helmet that I had painted, asked me to paint some helmets for them. So I painted those helmets. And then that kind of quickly evolved into people asking me if I could paint bike frames. And I, of course, I was just like, yeah, sure. Tell me what you want. 
Um, so I started kind of just chipping away at that stuff completely on the side, uh, but was kind of in the right place for the right people to kind of see what I was up to, uh, and they were pretty stoked on it. So the request kept coming in, and then finally uh, I had done a kind of space-themed galaxy bike at one point. Eagle Houston, if you'd like to try high game. And at the time, Specialized was giving away a frame to a race car driver named Ken Block, who has quite a large following, um, and his whole cars for the year were kind of galaxy-themed. So, of course, they came to me and was like, hey, we want to paint a bike for Ken Block? Uh, so I said, of course, and did, and I really think that was kind of the, the big moment where uh, some momentum started kind of rolling downhill and I just kind of went with it. I wanted to find out more about the design process behind creating a custom frame. How do you get that design first out of the ether and onto the computer? And secondly, how do you then get it onto the frame? First off, here's Tom from Custom Flow to tell us how he does it. Yeah, so basically people will come in with, with a general idea of what they want. Um, or have some ideas and then it's, it's kind of our job as bike is to try and pick the brains and, and get exactly what they want on that frame I'll sort of like have a quite a few discussions with somebody and then we'll I'll provide them a few illustrations of the how the design might look but the problem with that is obviously being a, a, a computer visualization it, it is a 2d image so, and we're working on 3D bike frames, so it's then in my head how it goes onto the frame and then how they perceive it. There's that many tools that we've, we've got at our disposal to do all these kind of um, graphics. The, the majority of them are done through stencils, um, so we'll take a designer or a drawing and sort of create the stencil, put the vinyls down and then spray over the top of the vinyls to create really sharp masks. But then there's also, you can use the airbrush to create special effects if you want to do kind of like fades and other little graphics like that. Uh, we've got, a, 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 it's called the plotter. It's basically um, a little kind of blade on a printer and you, you send the image through from the computer to the plotter and it just kind of cuts it out and creates like a little stencil. But one thing that I've learned over the years is I've I've now, well, a couple of years ago, I invested quite heavily in a very good cutter, which can sort of like cut letters down to a few millimeters, and you can still sort of like see them. Whereas a lot of people buy the cheaper cutters, and they just don't seem to get the detail. They do okay, but like, for example, on a logo where the corner is on like uh, on like a specialized logo, for example, on the S, on a cheaper cutter, you'll kind of get like a, a rounded edge to it, or like a curve. Whereas on one that you pay a lot more money for, you'll get that perfect sort of like right sharp angled cut. I think one of the one of the sort of like the smallest details I've managed to cut is I did an American flag and I managed to get all of the the white stars in the blue section uh, into a, a size of roughly about I think it was about six mil, <laughs> so wow. it's not very big. Um, I think there's some pictures on my Instagram of that. I'm holding the stencil up to the light and you can see it against the, a craft knife, how, how small it is, and how intricate the cutters can get. We predominantly use um, a vinyl plotter to cut out all the graphics, so the logos, the decals. 
that got on the frame in various places. These are then airbrushed on with a very, very fine layer of paint so that you can never really feel them on the final finish. There is some jobs where you're required to use your airbrush like to do it like hands-free, but that's mainly to create like special effects such as like fades and other sort of like Special, that's mainly special effects. Mm. And do you ever use? Do you ever use a brush freehand? It depends on what the project is. Um, sometimes, yeah. There's if, some of the customers might want something a little bit different, so you just kind of use whatever medium and tools are available to kind of create some art on the frame. Um, but I'd say ninety percent of the time, people just want kind of like standard colours really sharp graphics so every now and then when you do get that customer that gives you that like little bit of, bit of freedom to to experiment with different like brushes and you can use anything from <laughs> carrier bags dipped in paint to create textures it's there's really no limits to us what you can do really the idea of painting your own bike is one of childlike creativity just like the creativity of 1980s pop artist Keith Haring, whose art was born from the New York graffiti subculture. Children know something that most people have forgotten, Haring said. Children possess a fascination with their everyday existence that is very special and would be very helpful to adults if they could learn to understand and respect it. I'm now 28 years old on the outside and nearly 12 years old on the inside. I always want to stay 12 years old on the inside. He also said, art should be something that liberates your soul, provokes the imagination and encourages people to go further. Both of our frame painters have pieces of art or bike frames, whichever you prefer to call them, based heavily on the influence of a famous artist. Tom from Custom Flow designed a stunning Keith Haring inspired bike and Rad Tony painted an exquisite take on Dali's The Persistence of Memory or more commonly known as The Melting Clocks. These more obvious links to the more conventional art scene got me thinking, is there a boundary between a bike as a tool and a bike as a piece of art? Is there a point that it stops being a bike and starts being art? I think there are all of these things, but ultimately I think a a bike's kind of an extension of yourself when you're riding it, so then you can kind of express yourself through kind of like your artwork into the actual sort of the frame. So it does blur the boundaries a little bit, I suppose. The way I kind of see it is if it's moving, it's the tool. If it's standing still, it's a, it can be a piece of art, you know? Um, and I, I kind of like to look at it like that because I like to look at my bikes and really want to ride them. Um, but I also like to just look at them. They're very cool-looking tube shapes and you know, between two wheels, and it just looks like a good time. Um, so I really like the, the artwork to kind of accentuate how much you, you like looking at that thing, if that makes any sense. But, you know, as a as a bike, um, as a bike goes, a bike is a bike. So if, if you can ride it, then I totally would. Um, there's not another dolly work of art that I think you could throw your legs around and rip down a hill or something you know it's pretty cool so going back to Dali there are two famous quotes that stick with me from Dali and he said those who don't want to imitate anything produce nothing and he also said a true artist is one who inspires the other 
Are there any particular genres of art or particular artists that have inspired you and been fundamental to you in creating your style? And I wonder if, if in particular, um, with your background, if any of that inspiration has been from graffiti artists. Oh yeah, of course. Um, I think graffiti art was kind of one of the main first draws into the art world that that I kind of had and uh, was exposed to, you know, pretty early on. Um, I had tons of, of books about graffiti and all these different artists and stuff like that. So definitely the world of street art really appealed to me and also like the kind of black ops side of things, you know, like going out super late and sneaking under a gate or whatever, um, always kind of really appealed to me for whatever reason. Um, so definitely that world and there's so many different artists in that world, different styles and everything else um, that I think is just a constant inspiration and evolution um, of kind of what, what is going on. Uh, so I do like to think of kind of that kind of stuff and you know what I'm doing and how they can kind of meld together a bit. The more I thought about it, the more I realised I couldn't think of another sport where there was such a strong connection between art and the culture of the sport. So I put it to both of our painters. Why was that? Why did they think that is? I think one of the reasons I think is because a bike frame is more of a canvas. There's more surface area, more sort of like opportunity to kind of customise it compared to something like a tennis racket or like a golf club or something, for example. One of the reasons that people kind of liked to kind of express themselves through getting things customised, especially in the cycling scene, is they're trying to move away from like the heavily branded items. I know I get a lot of requests for people bringing in old bikes where they're absolutely covered with manufacturers, graphics and logos. And they just want them all taken off and just putting something simple on and then just, just a simple logo. I think it is ultimately that you can do it. Um, if you take like snowboarding and things for example if you paint a, a snowboard you don't really see it that much because it's on the floor and it also gets quite like damaged um whereas a bike it tends to be off the ground you can see it and i think people like the idea that you can see it basically <laughs> so i i actually would kind of beg to differ a little bit and i think that is kind of part of the drive why i started painting bikes um i mean yeah it's a very beautiful sport and uh the machinery itself looks awesome. People riding it look great. There's so much style and everything. Um, but I think what kind of drove me to keep going at this is that bike paint jobs are pretty boring. Um, of course, you have a lot of a lot of graphics and speed lines and stuff, and there's always a place for that. Um, but if you look at like bike lineups, it's pretty much single colors. Um, or just a few graphics. So what I've always kind of pushed for in my head, at least with, with what I'm doing is I'm kind of more focused on art, not the graphics. Um, you know, of course, speed lines and stuff always look good and whatever, but really making it into a piece of art, um, I felt like was kind of missing where if you look at, you know, skateboarding or surfing or, or snowboarding or really any board sport, it is pretty melded together with with the sport itself and the art um and yeah there's definitely uh some personalization going on in the cycling world with you know everybody wants the limited edition stuff and all that but that's just it it is limited edition um so 
yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it definitely is, is becoming more and more, but I think really getting these intricate designs and stuff on a bicycle frame with the most complicated tube shapes and, you know, frame configurations and everything else is a lot more difficult than constantly being able to just reproduce and print on a flat surface like a skateboard or a snowboard or something like that. Um, helmets are another really good example of it's just a very difficult item to make artsy uh, in terms of the graphics or the designs that's actually on the frame because they're so strange shapes to have to work with um, compared to other other art forms and uh, you know canvases I guess. It's no secret that these beautiful frames take hours of painstaking work. So I wanted to know, did these painters have any projects that they didn't want to let go and wanted to keep? First up, here's Rad Tony. I mean, there's definitely been a few that I have had a hard time letting go. Um, I think one that really stands out to me is the Queen of Hearts bike. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one, but I think I just the whole it. process of me doing that one and then the outcome of it um, was just a real stressful but memorable uh, experience. And then the outcome of the bike, I think, worked out. Couldn't have been better than, than what I envisioned. Um, so, yeah, that one was, was awesome, and I would love to have that thing back. I always kind of imagine spending half half my life creating all these things and then spending the other half trying to find them and get them back. <laughs> There's been quite a few projects I've worked on there, but I have quite a love for really old restoration projects where a bike will come in where it's maybe sort of like 40 to 50 years old. It's absolutely rusted through and I just absolutely love just sending it back out the door looking like it did when it first left the factory. But they are a bit of a labour of love, and I do like to kind of like, like have them around the shop. <laughs> I always think getting your bike painted for some people is a bit like getting a, t a tattoo. You, you sort of like become addicted to it, and you want more. So you change up the bike, and then you'll go get it painted again. And I've had quite a few customers that do that. I think as well, we're heading into this kind of world where we're trying to recycle things um, and not create as much landfill. The majority of the bikes that people are riding around on, they fit them perfectly, they ride perfectly. The only thing that's after a few years is maybe the components are a little bit older, they've been updated, and they're a bit uh, bored and tired of, of the way the bike looks. Just simply by giving it a, a new coat of paint, you can change it, but it's it's like a, a like the new old bike there. And finally, I wanted to know, what were some of the most challenging designs that Tom and Tony had ever done? The reason why a bike will become sort of like one of my favourite paint jobs is just because of the, the the level of intricacy to it. So you've really got to think about how you're going to get transferred this design from a 2D design that we have on the computer onto a 3D shape. Um, and it's, it's kind of that challenge that I like more than the actual painting itself, uh, the finished product. I like that kind of like the sort of the pushing myself to try and get the best from the design onto the actual frame. It's very rare that I do the same thing twice, so I'm constantly having to 
learn and then relearn things um, basically on every every project um, but I would say that that my most fun piece that I've done is actually my own downhill bike um, I originally had one that was so pristine and it had metal flake everywhere and tons of different candy colors and everything and every time I would hit a rock or hear it ding off of something I would just cringe so my next downhill bike I made it look like I literally pulled it out of the swamp and it's rusty and I layered the paint so that as it kind of chips and wears through it actually looks like you know it's it's just adding to the whole overall scheme of the bike um, so personally I think that that one was the most fun and uh, least amount of stress in a paint job that I think I've ever done so the paint that I actually used on it all the rust is actual rust it's um, this paint that has iron particles in it so as it kind of ages and different sweat and drinks or beer whatever gets spilled on it it <laughs> actually continues to, to rust and evolve which um, it's like a constantly changing paint job which is really cool um, to watch but very confusing for people I've definitely had somebody at a bike park stop me and say that he didn't know Specialized was tricking people that selling aluminum bikes that were actually steel because aluminum doesn't rust and of course this is <laughs> rusting so it must steal um it was a kind of a pat on the back to me i took it as so that was good um but in terms of um yeah a paint job that i'm really proud of and continue to look at it and it's also standing right in front of me right now so i'm looking at it as i'm talking to you um and i love it i think it's awesome shoot uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton cycling podcast team car the back of the pack please that is Seb PK once again interrupting this episode of Service Course to remind me to tell you that it is sponsored by Noom. Now, I don't know if you've seen Lionel Bernie recently. I was struck by how successful he had been at losing weight and having given up, well, not quite given up, but I don't spend as much time riding bikes as I used to since my family got a lot bigger very quickly and work got a lot busier. And I noticed that my um, habits hadn't really changed other than I was cycling less and my weight had started creeping up a little bit. So I looked to Lionel and saw what he'd done. I knew he'd done it through Noom. And so I decided to try Noom. I had modest goals. I wanted to lose about eight kilos. And what I was impressed with with Noom was that it wasn't in a rush to get me to my target. I was able to follow small goals every single day and lose weight in a sustainable way. And guess what? I reached my target and I reached my target probably two or three months ago. And using Noom, I've managed to keep that weight off to a point where it feels well absolutely normal for me what it showed me and I think what I learned most from it was that I drastically underestimate the amount of calories that are in 
foods. Noom has given me the tools to understand how many calories are in pretty much everything I eat to the point where I don't even check the app before eating a lot of things these days. I've just developed that instinct. I know how many calories I've got for the day. I know what extra calories my exercise allows me to eat. And I know what calories are in food. And just by sticking to the recommended daily amount of calories, I've been able to lose weight gradually and sustainably. So if you want to make a change to your diet and more importantly, potentially improve your cycling, then I strongly recommend Noom. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash cycle. That's noom.com slash cycle. N-O-O-M dot com slash cycle. N-O-O-M dot com slash cycle. Well, Tom, has that chat inspired you to have a go at painting a frame or painting anything really yourself? Lizzie, I believe that that is a loaded question that you come to with prior knowledge of my frame painting escapades. I only prior knowledge of your personality type, I think. <laughs> um, well, so, yes, I have. So once upon a time, I had uh, had an old Pinarello. It was, my, it was actually my first road bike. Um, not a dogma, I've got to say. And I discovered this product called Spray.Can, right? And basically, Spray.Can is a powder coat, essentially, in a can. And I was like, oh, I was, I was, a friend of mine's an artist, and he bought some. And he, he sprayed a frame, and it looked great. And I was like, right, this is easy. So I, so I bought a load of these spray paints. I've still got loads of them. Just writing, and, off, um, writing off the, uh, the work of the t- <laughs> these two artists that we've just spoken to. <laughs> that's right yeah do it myself for 15 quid or whatever but i did um i did spray up my old pinarello um it became my winter bike um i did an incredibly bad job of it such a bad job <laughs> <laughs> that the bike was absolutely hideous eye-catching fun a talking point uh but after one winter of riding it it just ended up staying in my shed in fact I think when we moved house from Glossop to Nottingham, I think it might have actually been left behind. Um, so, yeah, if you do see some uh, people in the Peak District on a very purple and black and fluorescent yellow looking Pinarello, that's my old winter bike. I'll post a picture Brilliant. of it on the feed. Yeah, it's- well, talking, talking about bikes and moving house, there's actually one of the things that inspired this episode. When we were moving house, I think we had... I think we had 13 bikes or fr- and or frames that we have in our house and there are only two of us and so six of those bikes have come over to France with us but we had to find homes for the rest of them and I had this one frame which was I guess it was the last frame that was mine rather than owned by a team or given to me by a team um, and it was a lovely Villia Cento 1SR it was um you know, the un- untreated or the, the, the raw carbon uh, with a kit clear coat glaze on it. And it was really beautiful. And we sold it to somebody on eBay. And about a week later, he sent me a picture of the frame and he'd done a paint job on it. And I kind of thought, well, if it is so easy or if it's possible to just do it yourself, then, well, 
how do you how do you go about doing it and why couldn't I do it myself so with that in mind I decided to pick the brains of Tom from Custom Flow about how a novice like you or I or maybe not quite as much of a novice but like you Tom but somebody who does need the advice quite hey, clearly I'm experienced I've done it I've got experience <laughs> would go about doing a do-over on an on a paint job on an old frame so once you've once you've got kind of like a design in mind of what you want to do you can then visit a paint shop or I think there's there's a few brands now that do spray cans that you can use at home to create your paintwork. You'll then need to sand down the frame. Now, when bike painters do this, we tend to sand down quite far and go almost like down to the carbon layers to get all the old existing paintwork off. You might not do as much as that on a, on a DIY job, so it's just a case of getting all the surfaces prepped down enough so that the, the the paints will adhere to them. If you're doing them from home, you, you, you obviously don't have the option of sort of getting, getting an aluminium or steel frame sandblasted or media blasted and a carbon frame, you, you can only sand them band anyway. So it's a case of just taking off as much of the old paint work as possible and getting the substrate ready to accept paint. And then making sure you use a, a very sort of like decent, a good primer. To, as I always feel that the the prep work is where sort of ninety percent of the paintwork's finish is made. So if you have poor preparation on it, the rest of your paintwork will just go to ruin. <laughs> if you put in logos on it, you'll you'll need to get some of them cut from somewhere. Uh, I think you can probably get them off eBay, um, some vinyl stencils or people will do them for you at a sand making shop um, so once you've got your bike into the colours that you'd want it you can then put the stencils over make sure they're all masked off nice and cleanly and put your look like spray your logos peel off all your masking make sure it's all free of uh, any grease and fingerprints and then it's a case of putting on a clear coat a lacquer I think I think really think it's just a, a case of having a go um, there's nothing stopping you you can't really mess it up because it's not gonna totally kill everyone basically. <laughs> if it does go totally wrong, you can just sand it off and start again and have another go. Before you run off to paint your old bike frame, I wanna tell you that this episode is of course supported by Science in Sport, as are all our other episodes on all our shows across the cycling podcast. And as always, as cycling podcast listeners, you are entitled to 25% off your next order with Science in Sport. Just go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25. That's SISCP25. Well, if the idea of custom painting your own frame seems like a little bit too much of a challenge or like Tom, you're scared of absolutely ruining what was a beautiful frame, (laughs) then why not start with a smaller project like a pair of shoes? Well, my teammate, Abby Smith, is a budding young artist and a brilliant young cyclist as well. And I spoke to Abby about her love of art and about how she got into painting shoes and how you can do it yourself as well. I started painting, um, I got into it really when I was doing my GCSEs, so yeah, I did art GCSE, really enjoyed it, um, but didn't have time at A-level, uh, it was either PE or art at that point, um, so I had to give up art, so I've, I've kept it on as a hobby when I can, but it's, it's not as often as I would like nowadays. 
the crossover comes with the creative side of me. So on the bike, I like exploring and creating routes and going new places and, you know, adventuring almost. And with painting, I kind of get to do that too because I can create whatever I want. I can I can go wherever I want. I can draw, um, you know, use whatever colours I want. So it's bringing out, both bring out the creative side in me. How did you come to paint your first pair of shoes? Um, that, I, I painted my first pair in lockdown because, well, everyone knows what lockdown was like. <laughs> Just <laughs> completely at, at wit's end, lost for things to do. So, you know, there's, I think, it, actually it might be my sliders I painted first. Um, but, you know, you, you just, you get bored and I think, hmm. What, what can I paint? What household object can I paint instead of a canvas? So I uh, tried the shoes, worked on the sliders, so I thought, let's try some cycling shoes, because uh, that is that would be pretty cool, riding around uh, kind of in in my own colours, and yeah, kind of, it's, it's your own unique little thing. First things first are, you need to obviously clean the shoe, so I just usually get baby wipes, give it a good wipe down, get any mud off. Um, doesn't really matter about scratches. Maybe use a nail file if there's any kind of, uh, any bits peeling off, um, just to smooth it down. Um, and then, yeah, at that point, you just start painting and see what happens <laughs> from my experience. There's, there's no particular right, and wrong because, right or wrong because um, generally you can paint over uh, any mistakes you've made, or I do anyway. Oh, I feel inspired by that, Lizzie. Um, actually, I have a friend who's a, a graffiti artist, and um, he customises trainers. And uh, you know, I've always kind of wanted to do. It. The only thing that holds me back is the fact that I am absolutely rubbish at art. You know, I, I am, I am terrible. <laughs> but I love all, I love all that stuff. And you know, you talked earlier on about um, Keith Haring and 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 that. New York art scene and you know like those guys were so influential in in my world you know uh, Basquiat and Karen because all these people sort of intersected with the music that I love with with hip-hop the early days of hip-hop and and punk and and, no New York in the in the early 80s just the coolest place on the planet this is the coolest episode we've ever done Lizzie well, I don't think I can take much credit for that. But no, it is really interesting. I mean, Keith Haring, Dali, you know, these are people that we've we've all seen their images, you know, on on walls across the world. You know, we studied them at school. I studied them at school in A-level art. And it's amazing to see the way those, those artists have inspired um, frame painters, you know, artists, frame painters who are, you know, talented artists in their own right. But it's just so beautiful to see this within our sport. And, and like I said before, I, don't, I do not believe that there's another sport where art is, is such an integral part of the beauty of the sport. And I, it's a really, really special thing. I'm, I'm really you know, glad to be a part of it. And you know, quite often when I, well, I'm not training, unfortunately, yet at the moment, thanks to pericarditis. But um, when I do come home from, from work, from, you know, from my bike rides, I... I come home and I see my pink kit in the window and it just makes me smile. And having, you know, my, your body as a canvas almost every day is just such a such a cool thing. And for the amateur cyclist, you know, there are so many amazing designs out there that you can 
really choose your style and you can choose what art to put on your body you can choose what art to put on your bike it's it's just pretty cool it's really cool it it is I mean, coming back to a question you asked me earlier about why in cycling and I, I think maybe it's because you know the bike as a canvas is incredibly beautiful bikes are beautiful mm. when they're just a, a, an unpainted frame and you know, who wouldn't want to you know add even more beauty to that canvas I think um and then when you put that into the setting of where you can take a bike it just takes it to another level yeah 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 it's just like being a mobile exhibition well listen Lizzie you're associated well you know your your team rides some very very bold creations as well don't you (laughs) No, absolutely. And I was actually hoping to get uh, Dr. Bobby on this show, who is, um, he's actually Cannondale's in-house frame painter, but he didn't feel like he could come on because there are too many secret projects going on <laughs> that he was too worried about letting something slip. Um, but Dr. Bobby has painted some some seriously wild frames for our team, um, for Lachlan Morton um, and, well, he's done done a lot of other really cool things look go and look him up but uh yeah no it's i feel very privileged to be in a team where um sort of art is at the forefront of of you know our image and what we do um because it, it makes a difference it makes a difference to the way you feel as well and that's the thing that's why art is so powerful because it really it really makes you feel good well is he i'm feeling great Thank you for that. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I shall... Just don't turn see... around and look at your, your own custom painted frame, Tom. <laughs> Otherwise, you might not be feeling so good. <laughs> Listen, anything of mine that is hand painted, hand built, handcrafted, just stay well away from all of it. Yeah, it's fun. I enjoy doing it, but you know, I yeah, I'm t- I don't have the patience and the time. But I've, listen, I've, I've, Lizzie, I've absolutely loved this. And... You know, I've been desperate for a custom-built bike for a long time, and part of the part of the desire is is because I want the the paint job. You know, and I think that what puts what's it's why I haven't got any tattoos. Is you know, it's I find it really really hard to just commit to one. That you know, that is the one. That is one I want to be associated with forever. But uh, give me loads of food for thought. This brilliant. Well, you're just going to have to get a a fleet of custom-painted bikes so you can get all of those ideas down in one. Lizzie, honestly, I'll I'll do it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I will catch you next month. Thanks, Tom. See you next month. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.